0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Ben, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker. As you may know by now, each pod I check in with a very special guest. We've been at her about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. My special guest for this episode, Venters, is Freya India. Freya is a writer who opines about various topics, including politics, culture, and analytical psychology. She has written for outlets including Quillette, Ario, Spiked, and Evie. In this episode we discuss how subconscious beliefs can affect your mental health, a deep dive into a few of the articles she's written, toxic femininity, male body image and getting co-signed by Jordan Peterson. We also discuss a major trauma Freya experience when she was younger when she underwent spinal surgery, the impact that had on her growing up as a teenager and how it shaped her perspective on life. This is how our conversation went. Freya, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Since I connected with Will Costello, it seems like I am interviewing every UK EVE psych writer or person in that sphere at the moment, and I'm absolutely loving it, to be fair, because the conversations have been fascinating. First of all, how are you and how are you coping and managing with everything going on in the world in the moment at time of recording?
1: Yeah, I'm good. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm doing well. and actually enjoying lockdown, having the time to focus on my writing, get a schedule, get a good routine going. So I'm quite lucky that I'm actually enjoying this weird time more than usual.
0: We'll discuss the article later in the pod, Frayer. But just quickly, how on earth did it feel getting co-signed by Jordan Peterson? Did your socials explode after he shared your article? And also, unfortunately, did you get any abuse off the back of it too?
1: It was amazing. I mean, I admired Jordan Peterson so much. So to have him validate my writing, it was just amazing. And actually, it was really positive. I think he has this side of his fan base that just adore him and... That's the side the media doesn't comment on and you don't see. But I didn't get any negative feedback from that at all.
0: Great stuff. Now you're nice and settled, shall we crack on with the show? (laughs) Let's kick off the pod by discussing your writing journey, Freya. So tell me how you discovered your love for it, maybe opinion forming, and when did it become a legitimate side hustle, if you will, and not just a hobby?
1: Yeah, so I studied politics at uni and I loved it. But I felt quite restrained when it came to essay writing, so I'm quite creative. So a couple of my lecturers were telling me that I was trying to write like an opinion journalist when I'm trying to do a social scientist dissertation. So I decided to try opinion writing formally about four or five months ago, and yeah, I've been loving it.
0: And how did you figure out or hone in on the topics you wanted to write about? Was it through books you read or the news cycle? And did it take a while to crystallise?
1: I started becoming interested in psychology and politics when I was about 16. And I was just really interested by individual behavior and then how that influences politics. So what kinds of people are drawn to certain ideologies. And when it comes to books, I started reading things that just questioned the mainstream. So the opposite of my uni reading list, things like Douglas Murray's Jane Steffi Europe. I started out with him, um, Jordan Peterson. And from there, I just found that their version of reality seemed to make more sense to me than what I was being told at uni.
0: The first article of yours I wanted to dive into, Freya, on your website is called The Spectre of the Ideal. Now, you frame this piece a lot around women's expectations of dating and finding the ideal, in inverted commas, partner and say how if they don't find this ideal with no pushback on their side, they will reject and move on. I guess this comes out a lot into kind of like the stigma around catching feelings, which is now some sort of weird phenomena. Can you unpack this article and the mental health implications that might have on women?
1: Yeah, so I think that the mainstream media can do a huge disservice to women when it comes to relationship advice and their self-esteem. You look at most women's articles and they tell girls that they're perfect the way they are, that you have to love yourself and that A lot of it is that they've probably encountered toxic men and a lot of the advice is how to deal with that. I even saw one in Cosmo recently which encouraged young girls in their 20s to cheat on their boyfriends. And I, I think that those messages can be detrimental to women's mental health because what you're doing there is you're saying if you've got problems, don't fix them. And I think it's just as detrimental as the unrealistic beauty standards. It's just the opposite end of the spectrum. It just stops you from progressing at all.
0: Sorry, that that article has just spun my head. Was that legit? I mean,
1: yeah, in Cosmo.
0: I'm just trying to like picture that on the other side, because well, I didn't get you know flagged to it, and it didn't become some sort of like trend on social media. Because if that was a <laughs> if that was a man writing an article saying please cheat on cheat on your girlfriends, that would be ridiculous.
1: I know. It, the headline was something like, "I cheated on every boyfriend I had in my twenties, and you should do the same."
0: Okay, I'm just going to give myself a pause just to take that in before I answer and this, ask this next question. Right, do you think dating apps, Freya, have added or even created this specter and the search for that perfect partner in inverted commas, or are they a product of it?
1: Yeah, I don't think they created the problem, but they definitely highlight it the most. So, for instance, women can have a lot of preferences when it comes to dating, but we can say we want tall men, we want men with a certain income or status, and men aren't allowed to have those same preferences anymore. You can't decide if you want a girl that's conventionally pretty or skinny, or even if you wouldn't want to date someone transgender, that's now become an issue. And I think that really demonstrates the double standards between men and women.
0: I think when it comes to men who aren't in that elite bracket, that's certainly true. If you're not in the, the top 20, you know, the 80-20 rule, if you're not in the top 20, you basically you basically have to get what you're given on dating apps, unfortunately, as I know in my experience. My favourite quote in the article Freya is this one you say quote but the demand for a perfect person rests on the premise that you yourself are already perfect. To find real love it's important to stop demanding so much of others and start looking inwards. What did you conclude in this article about how to break the spectre of ideal and return to reality and also given we're just talking about women here how do you think or hope that will help women's mental health in the long term?
1: I think you just have to realise you have to be more forgiving of people and realise that they're, they're complex and I think that kind of works with politics too the culture we see at the moment is that you have to be a perfect person not only in a relationship but in the public sphere,
0: but you, you can't
1: demand constant accountability for everyone's transgressions or, or absolute perfection in your partner because that makes you miserable in the long run so yeah, I think that we just have to learn that everyone is a work in progress and we have to come to terms with that. The next
0: article of yours I want to discuss is a lot more sensitive and centred around the sexual abuse and grooming gang scandals that erupted across the UK, which arose in prominence in Rotherham, but a host of other towns and cities actually became emerged and embroiled in it with their own groups of abusers and paedophiles. It's called The Limits of Progressive Empathy. Now, it interested me because on first glance, people may wonder how you can have a limit on a so-called positive emotion, and I'm always a big believer in empathy and being able to give that to other men and being able to support other men, as it's vital to understanding someone's mental health, being an active listener and listening to them. But you have a different angle on that, Freya, that I thought was quite interesting. Can you tell me more about that?
1: Yeah, so progressives are like, typically defined by their empathy, which is great, because you need conservatives who will be driven by rationality or pragmatism, and then you need the other side of that. But there's this kind of surface-level progressivism that's emerging. For instance, the left are very vocal about sexual assault and they want to support working-class people. Yet when an epidemic of child sex abuse emerges, there's a blind spot. And I think that happens when two beliefs contradict each other. So you could be adamantly against sexual assault. You want to support working-class people but you really don't want to perpetuate Islamophobia, so you can't recognise that factor. And I think what happens then is empathy, you reach a limit of it, because if you accept any more, you're going to have to contradict another fundamental belief that you have, so the issue just gets pushed away.
0: Do you think people are afraid to talk about some of these issues you discussed in that article, Freya?
1: Yeah, 100%. I mean, you can see that from the lack of celebrities talking about it. Celebrities jump on any chance to talk about a social justice issue, but, like I said in the article, if you brought up grooming gangs at the Oscars, there would just be silence. Lily Allen tweeted that there was a strong possibility the girls would have been raped by someone else anyway. And she also said, only white men have sexually assaulted me, sort of implying that the victims would be disingenuous because that's not her experience. So, there's a hugely defensive reaction.
0: From your own mental health perspective, Freya. How hard was that article to write and research, given the subject matter?
1: Yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, I did the topic for my undergraduate dissertation, so I know the story far too well. The worst thing is seeing people's response to it. That's the most horrifying thing. I mean, I had a comment from someone saying that the girls brought it upon themselves. And I mean, some of them were eight to ten years old. That's the most difficult thing to come to terms with.
0: Whilst we're on the subject of identity politics, Freya, one thing you did want to talk about here is its relationship with cognitive behavioural therapy and how those two can play into each other. CBT, as it's called, isn't suitable for everyone. It has helped me two times with rounds of therapy that I had. And when it does work, it can provide that person great management tools for their mental health, change the way their mind operates. And as previous Just Checking In podcast, Alex Koshyuta told me, it's stoicism in a can, which I thought was a really apt description. Can you tell me about how you think the two conflict With one another when played out in society
1: yeah so cbt teaches you the different cognitive distortions and then you work to unlearn them and that's something i always try and do myself so monitor my thinking and try and catch if anything is a distortion like a generalizing or absolute thinking but as jonathan Haidt says the identity politics trends teaches the opposite of cbt it actually encourages a lot of these distortions so generalizing, like all white people are racist, or absolute thinking, like Trump is a fascist, it encourages the extreme end of that thinking. And also emotional reasoning, you assume that everyone is out to personally offend you, when sometimes that's not the case. And I think that that's teaching a whole generation the worst type of thinking skills, and then they have to seek therapy later in life to undo that.
0: I want to talk about the article you wrote for Evie magazine, which we mentioned in the intro, Freya, which is about Jordan Peterson. And it's called, Can Women Learn Anything About Jordan Peterson? Now, if you wanted a clickbait title, there you have it. You got it. You got the views. Can you tell me why you wanted to write this article first and then the topics you discussed in it?
1: I wanted to write it. i just seen that hit piece on Jordan Peterson in the Sunday Times where they really went at him as usual. I guess I wanted to write something positive, not that I thought he would see it, but yeah, from a woman's perspective as well, because I hadn't seen that before. I mean, all the articles on him say that he's only of value to young men. He's like leading men's mental health. You don't really see it from the other side. So I wrote the three main lessons that I feel like carry through everything he says. So on individual responsibility, on suffering and on good and evil.
0: And what do you think women can learn from Jordan Peterson's work from a mental health perspective, Freya? I understand his work, like you said, on personal development was something you were keen to share. Was there anything else?
1: Yeah, I think it's just looking inwards, confronting your responsibility rather than hiding away from it. So there's a tendency, like in the women's magazines I mentioned, to blame everything external. So patriarchy or men or societal standards. And and sometimes that is true, but other times it helps to look at what you can control take that suffering into your own hands. And Peterson emphasizes that everyone suffers and that's quite a liberating thing to hear because you feel like life doesn't owe you anything and then when good things happen, you're really grateful for them.
0: This discussion allows me to segue nicely into a discussion about masculinity itself, Freya. Now, despite obviously having no lived experience of it, male body image was also something you wanted to discuss and the mental health aspect of it in particular. Why was that?
1: Yeah, so I wrote for Evie magazine about double standards when it comes to body image between men and women and, you know we have all these movements for women like fat acceptance movement body positivity but men are largely left out of the eating disorder body image discussion and obviously it does affect men different i don't think as many men sit and dwell on their body image but it's frustrating that those that are so vocal about opening up about mental health exclude a whole demographic from that consistently
0: I wanted to add an extra section in this pod, Freya, because it was about an article you wrote very recently for Quillette that was called My Generation Isn't Suffering Enough. Can you describe the issues you talked about in this piece? As on first glance, why should young people suffer more when it comes to their mental health?
1: Yeah, so obviously the headline is pretty controversial. But what I meant by that is that we live in a coddled society now where We get everything through instant gratification and we tend to avoid conflict and suffering. We we kind of feel like that's the goal of life, to minimise suffering as much as possible. So we're told to focus on self-care and prioritise safety. And as a result, when real suffering happens, which it does to everybody, it's inevitable. And it happens to every generation. We're not as resilient when it comes to those real events. So I advocated for the Stoic practice of voluntary discomfort so that's small things like a strict exercise regime or a cold shower or breathing techniques just things every day to prove to yourself that you're stronger than you think and then when these things happen to you later in life you've built up that resilience
0: social media is something most adults can't handle properly at the moment freya let alone kids and god knows how we expect this generation coming up to handle that how big a factor do you think that is
1: I think it's a huge factor. I mean, if you look at our suicide statistics, mental health statistics, it's young women that are suffering the most. And Jonathan Haidt and others have linked that to social media because women do obsess more over appearance. We compare ourselves to our peers in a very different way, in a very visual way. And I think that pressure is really affecting Anxiety levels, depression levels of young girls. I think it's one in four girls in the UK are depressed by the time they're 14, which is just unbelievable.
0: When I was in school, which actually wasn't that long ago, the mental health conversation was non existent, pretty much, I would say. From what I've read and the article you discussed, there is a growing narrative out there. I might be wrong on this, but there seems to be a growing narrative that teenagers are becoming on the other end of the spectrum almost so self aware of their own mental health that some might become trapped in a cycle of thinking they'll never overcome their mental health difficulties. They might self-diagnose really dangerously. And when it comes to things like eating disorders, exhibit very worrisome self-identification with their mental health, you only have to look at this trend now of these like pro-anorexia eating disorder accounts, which is horrific. I've been kind of researching this a lot recently. Have you seen any of that take hold amongst people you know, or am I way off on that?
1: Yeah, I think there's definitely, I mean, it's completely flipped so years ago if you had a mental health issue it was the last thing you were going to bring up in a conversation it's not going to earn you any friends, any social currency whereas now we can't deny that it's changed um it doesn't mean that everyone's doing it for attention or or whatever but the fact that it's gone to the other end of the spectrum now where if you have a mental health issue You bring it up in every conversation and it gains you friends and status in a way that it never used to. And I think that is quite worrying because younger people will see that and try to self-diagnose or the mental health issue becomes their identity.
0: A lot of what you describe in the article, I think, Freya, comes down to this concept, I hear a lot, that psychologists use of post-traumatic growth, and that's something I've probably exhibited in, in the years that have come since I was bullied in school. Can you explain how the idea of going through difficult moments, with the right support, obviously, can end up improving your mental health?
1: Yeah, I think if you go through suffering and you find that you're more resilient than you thought you would be, or you'd find a way out of that suffering and you look back, I mean most people if you ask them to describe the defining event of their life or what changed them to be a better person it would usually be a tragedy or horrific suffering like a divorce or even worse losing a loved one but I think we need to bring that more into the mental health conversation we we don't really hear people talking about their post-traumatic growth and we don't encourage those type of conversations as much as we should so I think we should be talking about how trauma can affect people negatively but also the other side we need to hear these stories because i feel like that would inspire a younger generation
0: before we reflect on your writing journey freya i just want to talk about one final topic in this section of the pod which is the concept of trigger warnings which i think we come at from slightly different angles but we i think we agree on most of this we're going to discuss now i put trigger warnings on any pod which discusses very harrowing content so it could be things like suicide sexual abuse rape all very, very traumatic things, self-harm, for example. I also think that trigger warnings don't really have any place in political debates where ideas are challenged and different perspectives generally shared. What is your opinion on it?
1: Yeah, so I think trigger warnings can be really helpful. I mean, if you're going to talk about something really graphic or show some graphic images on a news channel before an audience you don't know the age of, I think they can be helpful in that sense. But my problem is drawing the line. So you might not find calories traumatic, but someone might find a discussion of diet and calories very traumatic. So, you know, I think you're never going to win with trigger warnings because there'll always be someone who hasn't thought they've gone far enough. And I think it's difficult to draw that line between being considerate and being rational about what we add a trigger warning to.
0: Is there an easy solution to it, do you think?
1: I'm not sure. I think that, in my opinion, we should lessen amount of trigger warnings rather than aim to cover as many as possible because i've seen it said before that trigger warnings are a symptom of ptsd they're not a cure so i think that the more people are encouraged to confront their trauma and have it randomly show up in their life which it will that will help people more through involuntary exposure than if we try to cover as many trigger warnings as possible
0: As a writer who perhaps goes against the grain of what some might see as established opinion, Freya, is social media abuse ever something you've experienced yet? And if so, what impact has it had on you and your mental health?
1: Yeah, thankfully I haven't had much yet. But I did have a few personal comments on my Quillette article, the recent one. But for some reason, I can cope quite well with that. I cope really badly with criticism from friends and family. But when it's strangers, I can sort of detach it. And you sort of know what's going to attract criticism so for some reason essays on personal responsibility and confronting those type of issues really make people defensive so you sort of have to remember that a lot of the defensive comments is more a reflection on other people than it might be on you.
0: And just finally I know you aren't massively far into your writing journey for but so far what has it taught you about yourself do you think?
1: I think the biggest thing is how important it is me to speak the truth i always wanted to be a writer but i kind of convinced myself to stick to you know uncontroversial topics and safe in that respect but i'm glad i didn't because the more i feel like writing is to make a change and it's to inspire thought and conversation and the more that i do say what i genuinely believe the more i'm convinced it's the right thing to do and i i think it's good for your mental health to feel like you're not conforming to views and that you're you're getting out what you really feel
0: we've talked all about your writing journey freya i want to talk about your own journey in a bit more depth now so i ask all my guests this question first tell me about your early life childhood teenage years and looking back were there any early mental health experiences who's the freya we meet here
1: i had a really happy childhood my parents did divorce when i was young so naturally i struggled with that but not too an extent where it was affecting my mental health so otherwise i was a really happy child i lived with my mum and my brother and i saw my dad often and had grandparents nearby so yeah it's all happy memories
0: like you said you didn't have any major mental health trauma before the age of 16 despite obviously your parents divorcing which could have been a trauma you did however go through a pretty horrible experience where you had to undergo spinal surgery Can you take me back and tell me about when you first started to realise there was a problem and sort of walk me through that journey?
1: Yeah, so I started to realise that my posture wasn't right at about 15, but I didn't really think much of it and then eventually we went to the doctor just to see and a couple of doctors just brushed it off and then one final doctor said, no, it's a real problem and you need to get an x-ray. So I got an x-ray done and when it came up on the screen, me and my family were just shocked because it was a complete s shape and then that gradually started to affect my mobility my breathing and i was told i needed to have an operation right away in school
0: was it ever visible and did you ever experience any name calling or abuse because of your posture or were you able to fly under the radar a bit
1: i mean it was visible but i myself i really stuck to the background i was quite a quiet and withdrawn teenager anyway and i didn't really tell anybody about it i mean i told a handful of close friends but most of my friends don't even know to this day. So luckily I managed to avoid all that. And now wouldn't be able to tell at all. So it's good that it's not a big part of my life anymore. How did you
0: feel in the build-up to that surgery? As I imagine you they might have given you the spiel about, you know, not waking up after anaesthetic or something like that. Was that scary for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, they said terrifying things about big chances of paralysis and going blind and never being able to walk again that's pretty tough to take in when you're 16 but luckily my surgery was the day after my prom so i was pretty distracted right up until it happened so i didn't have weeks to sit and worry about it
0: as a kid you said to me off air that you lived a pretty sheltered life up until that point did that event maybe shatter that childlike innocence you had and looking back now are you perhaps in some ways glad that it made you grow up and mature a bit more quickly
1: yeah i do consider it to be the sort of defining event of my life obviously people have suffered a lot more than that but it was traumatic to me because of that sheltered childhood and i never really thought about life the same after i think i'm just quite aware now that tragedy can strike at any moment things can derail and i feel like i'm, I'm more braced for that it's cliche but it, i'm stronger than i thought i was and that's sort of prepares you for later things to happen in life.
0: After the surgery, you were wheelchair-bound and it took you six months to walk again. If you could, just tell me about the recovery period here.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously it was physically difficult learning to walk again and shower on my own and things like that. I mean, I could sit up for five minutes before I was exhausted. But the worst thing was the mental health toll. Couldn't see my friends, couldn't do basic things properly. I had to call my mum in the night to come and turn me over in my sleep if I wanted to turn. And It's just mentally adjusting to that loss of independence. And I always say to people, I could do the physical pain again, but I could not do the mental toll. If you could say,
0: what was the most difficult moment for you and your mental health, Freya? And then maybe on the flip side, what got you through it, do you think?
1: I think just literally laying in the hospital room I had moments of extreme pain but it was the time the time waiting for time to pass and sort of watching my parents sit in that room and go home and I would stay there so I think that was the most difficult thing but I got through it by each little step I took each day I tried to really be grateful for it and take it as a step closer to home so even if I could just walk to the end of my room that would be the best feeling in the world because I know it's a day closer to going home.
0: For a whole year, you were classed as disabled and you told me off air you struggled at times when it came to having those needs met, like asking for a different chair at a university seminar, for example. How difficult was that period for you?
1: Yeah, it was really difficult. I mean, I'm quite a shy person anyway, so to get up and ask for a chair and, you know, bring attention to myself was really difficult and I didn't really get much support from friends because they didn't really understand to them it was just an operation but a spinal operation is very different it's your whole life uprooted but to try and explain that to people is difficult without them having gone through it but i do think things have changed now even since when i was 16 you can talk to teachers about your mental health more you can bring those conversations they come about a lot easier and even when i was in school i really found it difficult to have that attention on me
0: obviously now you're not classed as physically disabled but given you went through that did it open your eyes to how the lives of disabled people live permanently and maybe give you more empathy or more understanding and compassion?
1: Yeah definitely I think it's all sorts of things I feel empathy for obviously disabled people physically but also people who have depression who are stuck inside I can relate to that on a small scale and especially with lockdowns, thinking about some of the people who haven't left the house since March. I mean, I really know their mental health toll that that has. So yeah, I do think about that all the time when I meet people.
0: Because of the surgery, like you said, you didn't get to have that stereotypical teenage experience of perhaps debauchery or hedonism. One tends to have, I, don't, I didn't get it, but a lot of people seem to have got it when they were teenagers. Did you have any fear of missing out or FOMO because of that when you saw your friends having a good time?
1: I didn't really get FOMO. I think because what was going on with me was so big that everything else sort of became trivial. I was trying to walk again. I couldn't care less if someone was at a house party and I wasn't. And also I wasn't on social media, so I wasn't having it shoved in my face all the time. I think I did catch up with that stuff at uni, but it's never really been my scene anyway.
0: Looking back... Do you think this event was the spark that started your writing journey? And how did Jordan Peterson's writing help you as well during that period?
1: Yeah, I'd say it's definitely a big part of it. I had so much time on my hands. so I was just reflecting on bigger things like psychology, philosophy. I just had months on end to read and think about stuff like that. So I was thinking about like, what I wanted to do with my life, what relationships I want to have, how I viewed the world. And I guess now I get all of that overthinking out by writing.
0: After your recovery was complete or near complete, you ended up being able to go to university and had to navigate a big wide world after almost two years of being stuck indoors all the time, similar to kind of the pandemic now, ironically. How did you manage that transition mentally? Did you feel pressure to catch up on lost time and were you able to do that?
1: Yeah, I think I did feel pressure, but I had a great social life at uni, I met a lot of friends, but I always need that time on my own to recharge and I prefer smaller, intense groups of friends and than big groups anyway. But uni definitely made me more confident. I mean, I said yes to everything and made sure that I pushed myself out of that comfort zone.
0: Do you think university helped you rediscover yourself?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it made me learn more things about myself. Like, I know what I enjoy now. I know that I'm more of an introvert than some people. And I think you have to go through those things that you might find uncomfortable to realise at the end who you are.
0: And just finally, before we go on to the mental health chat, Freya, given all you've been through along this journey, how have these experiences shaped you into the person speaking to me today? And what have they taught you about yourself?
1: I think the biggest thing they've taught me is that life is unpredictable. It can be tragic and it can derail. And that's almost the beauty of it. You have to brace yourself for those things. And in the periods in between, sort of prepare yourself for those events so i'm far more confident and braver really to tackle life than i would have been
0: we have come to our final topic of conversation freya and it's one i try and have with all my special guests which is a general natter and chat about mental health so firstly and you can include or exclude the worldwide circumstances we are living in how would you say your mental health is at the moment
1: i'm actually pretty good it's quite strange but i think Lockdown has actually improved my mental health because I was midway through a dissipation when it all kicked off. I was super stressed out, living with a flatmate and just stressed all the time. And to take that time to move back to my family home and relax, I feel like that's what I needed before life started up again. So now I've moved out, I've got a schedule being productive. So yeah, it's really good.
0: And if you felt comfortable saying, what mental health issues or conditions, if any, do you live with? And how do they affect you in your day-to-day life?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say I live with a mental health condition. My mental health is pretty good most days, but obviously I have down days like everyone. I think the thing I get stressed the most with is productivity. I can be really harsh on myself if I don't feel like I've done enough. I get anxious if people imply that I've not done enough. So I can definitely overwork. That's something I'm thinking about all the time.
0: What age do you think you were when you first became self-aware and realised that these feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health?
1: That was probably about 16. I mean, it sounds pretty late, but like I said, I had this happy childhood where i I'd, I'd never had to think of mental health as a battle or something that you try and work on every day because I had no reason to feel anxious. So, for instance, with my surgery, I was prepared for the physical pain, but I had no idea what a mental challenge even was. So I think now I try and prepare mentally for everything first and and that takes priority.
0: Can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? Who was it with? What impact did it have? And looking back, did it feel like a big burden or weight had been lifted and you had entered maybe a new chapter in your life? Or did it seem fairly insignificant and normalised at the time? How do you look back on it?
1: I guess it would be speaking with my mum about my mental health after my surgery. I mean, I had a a lot of conversations with her about how I was feeling and that when you're in that kind of state, everything feels hopeless and you need to talk to someone who's going to give you that hope again for the future. And I kind of realised that after my surgery, that mental health isn't sort of a temporary or adolescent thing. It's something you have to focus on every day and you, you have to find the right balance for But yeah, I think ever since, I really feel like mental health is a big part of my life and everyone else's life. And once you realise that, other things start to fall into place.
0: Can you tell me what triggers do you have that affect your mental health? So it could be things people might say to you, for example, like you're talking about with productivity or a sound or a sensation, or have you not figured all of them out yet?
1: Yeah, I get most anxious about whether I'm doing enough. So someone could say a completely passing comment to do with me, being lazy or something and that really makes me stressed out because I have to schedule every part of my day and I I actually have to schedule relaxing because I can seriously overwork myself I think also I get triggered by my environment if it's messy to order my thoughts everything else around me has to be ordered as well so I'm trying to get a good mix of keeping things in order but also accepting relaxing when I have to
0: And what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health, Freya, or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't?
1: I think it's the classic eating right and exercising. Also sleep, I have to get eight to nine hours of sleep, otherwise I'm really anxious the next day. Something that doesn't work for me is just forcing myself to relax. So if I try and lay in bed all day and not focus on anything, for me it makes it worse because... I need to stay busy and productive to not get in my head too much.
0: Toxic masculinity is something we try and break down a lot on this pod, Freya, and I'm sure you'll have loads to say here. Hopefully in a few more pods, hopefully very soon, in a few more years maybe, it will be in a very small minority. As a woman, what does toxic masculinity mean to you and what examples have you experienced of it that you can share with the listeners?
1: I'd say, firstly, that I don't think toxic masculinity is a particularly useful term. But from my understanding, it's when traditionally masculine traits can be taken to the extreme. So if you're stoic, that can become, you're completely shut off your emotions. And if you're strong, that can become uncontrolled aggression. And I've definitely experienced toxic masculinity as in bad male behaviour, like harassment. I wouldn't say those things are anything inherent to masculinity itself, because I've also experienced a lot of positive masculinity. I mean, from male figures in my life they offer me the most support and i don't agree that men are particularly toxic or any more toxic than women because i've probably experienced the same bad behaviors from women throughout my life as well
0: we also talk a lot about positive masculinity as well Freya, which is what you've nicely just said there and hopefully again i say in a few more pods and maybe a few more years masculinity will just be positive masculinity it won't be derided it won't be given these kind of toxic labels and stuff like that What would you describe as some of the qualities which you've experienced about positive masculinity? Is it, for example, empathy, supporting others, self-confidence? You know, what can you tell me here, too?
1: Yeah, I think it's balancing out typical female behaviours as well. So, like, for instance, my granddad, he's, to me, the epitome of positive masculinity because he's from that generation where, you know, if my nan is worrying about something, he adopts stoicism to get the balance right. And I think... Positive masculinity and positive femininity work together really well. And that's when you know that there's nothing inherently wrong with masculinity. It's just people's behaviours going off and, and being toxic. So yeah, I think stoicism, empathy and, and strength is in mental strength and physical strength. It's not just masculinity as in a guy with a six pack. That's a stereotype of masculinity, but anyone can have those typically positive masculine traits.
0: On the other end of the spectrum, a topic which I wanted to talk about here, Freya, is toxic femininity. You mentioned it a little bit there, and Alex Kosciuto talked to me about this subject as well. You wrote about it in an article for ARIO called Social Justice Culture and Toxic Femininity. For the listeners who don't know, can you tell me what toxic femininity is and some of the examples that you lay out in the article about it?
1: Yeah, so I used toxic femininity to dismantle the narrative of toxic masculinity. I used three examples: cancel culture, safetyism, and the reliance on lived experience. And I wanted to show that just how men can turn toxic, or male traits, so can female traits. So, to saying toxic masculinity is unhelpful. Because, for instance, women are naturally more empathetic, and that can be taken to an absolute extreme, where you deny reality in order to not hurt someone's feelings. Also, indirect aggression, we usually you know, destroy someone's reputation when we're out to get them. And that is sort of embodied by cancer culture. And also I'd say the biggest one is being overprotective, which we have a tendency more towards that toxic trait. And that can end up with, you know, coddling minorities, coddling the younger generation. See, I wasn't saying it to say that society is toxically feminine, but to show that both terms are just going to make the problem worse
0: like you said in the article, you state that cancel culture is an inherently female phenomenon, if I'm right in saying. And I often see on Twitter, the quotation marks, mean girls in high school, but as adults kind of crop up a lot when I see people talk about it. Is that how you would explain it? Or is it deeper than that?
1: Yeah, I would say cancel culture is the epitome of just destroying someone's reputation, because they're not perfect. And I think that Obviously, some people are cancelled for serious things, but other times it's sort of a trivial comment they made years ago, which destroys their career, their family, their reputation. And I said in the article, you see that in the animal kingdom, that female species often they want to ostracise their, their opponent out of the group. I mean, I went to all no girls' school, so to me, that's just self-evident. I've seen that over and over, and I think everybody knows that that's sort of a female tactic, but we don't talk about it in the same way that we would talk about it if something resembled a male tactic or a male behaviour.
0: You mentioned earlier about the the male stereotype of being bulky, shredded, six-pack, which I think is putting a load and load of pressure on young boys nowadays. You're seeing young boys go to the gym earlier and earlier and not getting a chance to live that normal teenager life, I would think, in many ways. Coming back full circle to the dating economy or dating, do you think toxic femininity does exist in dating in regards to beauty standards or expectations of relationships? And how does it impact men and women in dating?
1: Yeah, I think that, well, within relationships, typically female traits can be taken to the extreme and that can dismantle a relationship the same way that a man can do that. So yeah, we can become too overprotective of our partners, you know, like the crazy girlfriend stereotype. We're more emotional and that can become irrational. But I think that impacts men within relationships it's much less talked about than abusive relationship from a man's side. But I also think within the dating economy, men can't really win because if they call out women for toxic behaviour or they don't like something a woman does on a date or in a relationship, then they're toxic or a misogynist. But if they're more romantic or forgiving of women, then they're a simp. So it's kind of impossible for men to date at the moment and to know what the boundaries are.
0: Yeah, I definitely understand where you're coming from. And I absolutely hate the phrase "simp" as well. It's just it's it's up there with "men are trash" in my estimations of phrases that I hate in that sphere. As a woman yourself, Freya, how would you go about tackling it? Because there isn't an, a simple, easy solution, is there?
1: No, I think just those principles that I laid out in the Jordan Peterson article, and I think that's why he's so popular. Because I think he does have the solution, and the solution is an individual level. So. Encouraging every individual, every man and woman to look at their own behaviour rather than thinking about their collective group and things inherent to masculinity and femininity. It's better just to look at your own flaws and focus on them in your own life and you'll stop them from projecting onto everyone else.
0: And just finally, what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to do it,
1: yeah, I think discussions like this are important with all types of people and they need to involve everyone, but really involve everyone. So you can't tell everyone to open up about their mental health and then tell like straight white men that they can't or to make fun of them when they do. So it has to be true diversity, no matter what your conception of privilege is or power, you know, we all have to have that discussion. And I think. As well, what we said about post-traumatic growth, those conversations need to come into it. I'm most inspired to stick to myself and get up in the morning when I hear about people who've overcome suffering. And so I think younger generations need to hear that message and that's what's missing from society, really.
0: Well, we have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thanks to Freya for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with her. I will put all of the articles we discussed in the show notes and where you can follow Freya on social media too. I hope this pod has got you thinking, challenged you and shone a light on how big an impact serious physical injury can have on your mental health too. If you like what we're doing here at VENT, please give it a share on social media, tell your friends or work colleagues about it or support our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash help UK or give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and help those glorious algorithms. We hope to check in with you again very soon and remember it's always okay to vent.